This is Recruiting Daily's Recruiting Live podcast, where we look at the strategies behind the world's best talent acquisition teams. We talk recruiting, sourcing, and talent acquisition. Each week, we take one overcomplicated topic and break it down so that your three-year-old can understand it. Make sense? Are you ready to take your game to the next level? You're at the right spot. You're now entering the mind of a hustler. Here's your host, William Tincup. This is William Tincup, and you're listening to the Recruiting Daily Podcast. Today we have Ankar on from Turing, and our topic today is really interesting. It's the impact of AI match teams on project outcomes. Haven't talked about this before. Talked about a lot of AI matching stuff, but not not as a result. So I'm really interested in, in, in exploring this. So, Ankar, would you do us a favor? May make sure I got the pronunciation of your name correct. A, B, introduce yourself, and then C, introduce Turing. That's good. Thank you, William, for having me over. Sure. So my name is Onkar, and I lead the data science and AI teams at Turing. By training, I'm an optimization algorithms person. Uh, I was doing a PhD at Stanford, and I happened to stumble into statistical modeling and data science as, a, as an application of optimization algorithms. And that led over to over 10 years of last last 10 years of my life working at the intersection of AI and marketplaces. So building and growing marketplaces using AI. And my past role at LinkedIn, I've led the AI teams, which grew the ads and service provider marketplaces. So I really enjoy working on the marketplace optimization problems because it provides like a unique mix of AI and optimization problems, a very different flavor from traditional search and recommendation systems. So... so- before yep. we jump into the the project outcomes and and what what matching can do for that, I do have a question around algorithms, especially for the audience's sake. How often do you have to go back and tweak an algorithm or to make sure the algorithm is doing what we thought it was going to do? Like we set out with an intention, yep. maybe even with some guardrails, but how often do yep. is it constantly or is it something that we yes. do periodically? Like what's the, no, what is that world? It, yeah, it's a constant work. So daily, I would say we are looking at ways to improve the algorithm, always try to identify the deficiencies in the algorithm, right. add guardrails, add heuristics. Add... So traditional machine learning gets you somewhere, but then you also always need these guardrails and heuristics to make sure it also makes sense uh, in terms of common sense. Right. So right. it's a con- continuous iteration, iterative process. And so it's and, and so that's the kind of when people talk about it, they talk about calibration and recalibration in those terms of just making sure that, again, it could be seconds, minutes, hours, days, but you're always, to, to make it more efficient, to make the algorithms that we create more yeah. and more efficient. Yes, more and more efficient and also adapting to the changes. So mm. if you look at the last 12 months, the economy has shifted drastically. What was the startup valuation and startup craze in 2021 right. is very different now. And your algorithms also have to adapt to that because you cannot necessarily just learn on the data from yesterday and hope that it it's applicable today. So right. it's not just the improvement, but it's also almost like catching up to not degrading. In ads, it used to be funny, like our metrics used to almost be constant and the impact of the team was actually to keep it constant. There is an aspect of improvement, but there is also an aspect of avoiding degradation, which right. is also a continuous process. You're, it's, it's like you're watching both sides. You're watching the yeah. efficiency side and the degradation side, both yeah. equally important. Thank you for explaining that to me and the audience. So when yep. you, as you look at AI matching, you've looked at all kinds of AI matching as it relates to talent and things like that. 
what do we need to top line? What do we need the audience to know in terms of project outcomes? What's A got to do with C? Yeah. If you look at traditional recruiting, right, everybody has a resume and now everybody has a LinkedIn profile, but there is limitation to what is available in that. So it lacks quite a little bit of signals. Nobody writes like what are their weaknesses or what are, like everybody writes about strengths, for example. So it the resume or the LinkedIn profile or the traditional way of how we even get to the match is very limited. It lacks transparency in the actual performance versus what is on paper. So we do have interview processes, right? Everybody interviews before hiring someone, but it's a quite an expensive process and also takes time. And in a way, interviews are also quite limited in what you can gauge within the 60 minutes. Interviews tend to uh, optimize for, avoid for false positives, but we right. let go of a lot of false negatives. So we let go of a lot of good candidates to make sure we don't hire a bad one. And despite that, we, like all these companies, like the, if you look at the attrition rates, it's quite significant, both regrettable or non-regrettable attrition. So overall, the matching process is quite expensive, quite inefficient. And one way to make it better is to use AI and use data to do it. So one of the things we do at Turing is the vetting engine, what we call the vetting engine. So we get with the, start with the baseline of what you know about a, about, a, about an individual, which comes through their resume, maybe their LinkedIn profile, maybe their GitHub profile. But this is information which is available. But what we do on top of that is get them through a variety of multi-format testing. So mm-hmm. that is where the uh, efficiency of uh, interview processes can be improved. If we can get that more additional detailed signal about what are your particular strengths, what are your weaknesses, what are the things which you have done in the past, which you have written on the resume, but actually is something you can do in the new job. So that is the that is the majority missing piece in the match, which we can, with the use of data and AI, make it much more meaningful. And that, of course, leads to much better outcomes in the project. If you think of it like Turing, one of the primary goals in how I think of Turing is to improve efficiency in this whole matching and interview process. So if there are 10 companies interviewing 100 candidates, there are maybe 1,000 interviews, right? And if you think of it, a candidate is going to each of them and saying, like the majority part of the interviews is common. So if you could abstract out, say, 60, 70% of the interview and let the candidate only do it once, it's highly efficient for the candidates to not have to go and talk about the same things at 10 different places. And also for the company side, we can provide this information in a digestible form for the company. So they don't have to spend 80 and 90 interviews trying to get the same information, which they could get in a much shorter time. So if you abstract out majority of the interview in this, if you think of it as a bipartite graph, so two-sided graph of candidates and companies who are interviewing, the information sharing is, there is a lot of overlap in the information sharing. A lot of it can be abstracted out using data and AI, and you can use this in the matching to improve the quality of match. And the teams which are now uh, built based on this detailed information we have about our developers, of course, have much better outcomes. So you have you are already aware of the strengths and weaknesses of a candidate. You know what are the kind of tasks they are potentially good at, what are the kind of tasks they won't be, and you can customize your onboarding process based on what you know about the developer, even before they have started doing anything for you. So the testing, let's dig into the testing for, for yep. a second for the audience, um, yep. especially with technical talent. Are, are we looking at kind of the three-dimensionality of, of a skill? 
and what yeah. they have are we uh and, and with that i want you to just tell us about testing and the way that you approach yeah. it but i'm also i'm curious as to how you think about potentiality yeah and also pursuits like someone's graded let's say uh java yeah but they don't want to spend any more time in java they want to do something else so while their right. skills are really deep and that's what you need as a java developer but right it, so it'd show up in a way like their skills would show how strong they are but that's not really yeah. what they want to do next or what they Correct. you know Correct. where they want to grow into so how do we take yeah. into account on both sides the what the the potential of what they have but also what they care about like where do we gather that data Correct correct so let me talk about the testing first so again so i have much shorter background in this space compared to you but the way i've thought of how the interview process has evolved is initially it started with textbook kind of knowledge hey what did you learn in these courses and those were the kind of questions we would ask then i think google came in with these coding challenges or maybe it was even before google but google suddenly made it a lot popular with this data structure coding questions but then when uh, the software developers actually go to work they very rarely use any of the information which they were tested on in the interviews right so uh, for our testing we uh, not really cover the basis with the textbook knowledge with the data structure or the fundamental knowledge but we also test developers on practical coding challenges or like practical work so if you could simulate your day to day and if you could compress it in a magical way to get at to get a developer take a 2 hour interactive session of sorts which gives you a flavor of how they would operate in your particular role that is much more valuable than whether they know some specific textbook knowledge which they can google today or even specific data structure which they can use chat gpt today to uh, learn very quickly and uh, put it to use so the things we test in interview versus the things we want to actually uh, what uh, which are actually used in the day to day work they are somewhat different and our testing is trying to get closer and closer to the and that's why i was saying we have multi format multi uh, modal interview process so to say orbiting process now the second question you asked me about how do you capture the developer preferences and that is where the marketplace optimization becomes important because in a traditional search and recommendation system given a job you find the best candidates right and it completely overlooks what the candidates preferences are whereas in the marketplace you are thinking of a three way problem so the platform growth is dependent on supply and demand both being happy in the match so we have to factor in the developer so in the multi objective you call it utilities so the recruiter's utility or the client's utility is to hire someone whereas the developer's utility is to find a job which pays well and is something they would enjoy doing so we need to capture both of these and we do and that is what goes into the matching because we want to make more sustainable matches where both sides are happy and that's how platform grows love that so a couple of things one i know technical talent in general hates test <laughs> especially yes. the more senior people i guess yes. the more senior you become the more you're like huh Yeah, you want me to take yeah. a test. So, how do we make it fun? Like, I've heard of of people where they create environments. Okay, look, you're going to be in an AWS environment. You're going to be using these tools. Here's a problem, and so they can see themselves in a particular stack and solving yeah. a problem, and that's yeah. more interesting than uh, answering a coding quiz, etc. Yeah. 
I've also seen people use metaverse and do different different types of things to make you still got to get the the results of the test. But you've got an audience that, by and large, again, junior level talent, uh, technical talent, maybe, but the, the more senior they become, the more they hate tests. So, yes. yes, but and this is in their best interest. So yes. Yes. So uh, certainly part of it is that messaging. So while you hate tests, I think you would hate having the same interview or talking about the same thing to 10 companies. So which is goes to my previous point. If we uh, make it as an abstraction of the interview where you spend only 20% of the time interviewing and you spend the 80% overlap over multiple interviews only once. So that is that messaging once to say that, hey, all the things you're doing in this testing is only done once and then it's applicable to all the jobs and not forever in the future, but at least like for a sizable time window. So one, there is that efficiency argument. And second, yes, I agree. We see more senior people. You're absolutely right in the inside that more senior people do not want to do these textbook tests or the coding challenges. They are more and more inclined to do more practical challenges. And we gauge it based on there. We have to rely on the resume and your GitHub board to let you pass some of the initial stages and directly go to the final stages. Do you this is the practical coding. Do you have clients now or do you even do it for yourself where you're looking at maybe the team dynamics? So you're matching up, okay, you're building a seven-person team to then work on X, yeah. whatever the thing is. Are you not looking at skills? I get all that, but some, not as much with technical talent, but with <laughs> other talent, you're also looking at chemistry, like how people get along, how they communicate, how they interact, et cetera. Yeah. Have you had clients ask you about that type of stuff yet where they like, hey, I want to know all, I want to get the match and I want to, yeah, because it's going to help us with the outcome. Like, check, yeah. got that. But right. we've got a built team and I also want to make sure that this person gels well with this right. team, however right. they're configured. So, how right. do, again, if have they asked about that? Is it something yeah. that y'all are seeing? Yeah. So, we have two types of clients. So, someone who is just augmenting an existing team. Mm -hmm. They certainly care more about how this new person comes in and gels well. And right. we have testing along that for soft skills, seniority, or leadership skills, as we would call it, on right. how this person would respond to some of the challenges, which can't, it's, which is not really a technical challenge. Right. Uh, so that's one aspect. And the second aspect is the services offering, where uh, we offer to the interface with the client is a little different, where we offer to deliver a project and the whole team is abstracted out of the clients. So there they care less about how the team dynamics because uh, Turing takes care of it for them. But internally, we do care about these things because a successful team, it can be this, it's, what is it? The sum of parts is larger mm -hmm. than the, That's right. the whole is larger than the sum of parts. So that certainly is applicable when it comes to these services offering. So this is something we are closely watching. We have some initial work there to, like I said, we have seniority or leadership tests, which help us give us some signal on this. And we are constantly adding more and more data facets at yeah. and about needs well, uh, on the developer side. Something that the IO psychologist would probably have you add is do the personality test for all yes. the team and then yes. to understand what you got. Uh, yes. And then, and then also do a personality test on the talent that's coming in so that you understand, yeah. okay, how well the personalities are going to get along. Again, coding's coding. However... Yeah you're still going to communicate. You're still going to use Slack or Teams or whatever and be on Zoom calls. And that's still going to happen. So the chemistry yeah. part is still there. 
Let me ask about the the line that we've made between AI matching and what we do more significantly, go deeper, get more richer data so that we can make better matches yeah. and project outcomes. So outcomes being price, quality, speed, budgets, be projects being done on time, within budget, all of that type of stuff. So how do how does the client view success? Is it retention? Is it like when they look at this, obviously it makes sense, right? But w- how do they view success? Do they view success as project, the project that we hired that person on is done on time or all within budget? Or is it that we retained them and we didn't have to go through churn and uh, and things like that? Like how do they, what are you hearing from clients in terms of what they think success is? Yeah. So it's a spectrum. And uh, so they start with how quickly we can get something on the table. So mm. how quickly can we get started? And that itself is somewhat of a differentiator for us because we are doing the pre-work of interviewing a uh, majority right. part of it. So if we can quickly get started, that itself gives us an edge because the time spent in building the team is also somewhat taken away from the outcome, delaying the outcome. So that's one aspect. In terms of successful outcomes, yes, some clients care about this project being delivered and then they rematch or redeploy the same talent for subsequent projects. Sometimes they also want to hire them full-time and we have made those deals as well. So that is like an ultimate success where somebody who was in the other part of the globe who probably had no access to the client here, we made the match and not just made the match, we made it like a much more sustained than like a project-based match. So we have some success stories there as well, but most of it is on the project and then subsequently next project and so on. I can see this, how fast you can stand it up is probably the first thing that they view as success. Like, all this is great. We're already, we're technical debt. We're already behind. We need to be up and running in seven days. So I could see that being the first line of success and then it gets deeper. I did want to ask you some questions around AI matching and your take on kind of auditing and also ethics. So what do you, what's your perception right now of just AI matching and what do we, what is the, what does the practitioner need to ask more about from the vendor? What do vendors need to do more Mm -hmm. and do a better job? We're at the early stages of this. So everyone's learning as they go. Yeah. It's a wild west. But it's just your personal take on just how you look at matching, how AI matching and, and auditing, and then also yeah. how you look at it and what the ethical kind of treatment should be. Yeah. Yeah. So algorithms are always dependent on the data and they learn the biases very quickly and they optimize the hell out of them because that's what they are designed for. This is even that LinkedIn we had seen. A lot of times, if you are not careful, you will see the metrics go up, your business metrics go up. But under the hood, there are some biases which creep in. And so it is really on the algorithm developers to to be the ones who start with these questions and that across the industry now. There is a lot more talk about responsible AI. People are thinking about this way before, way more than they did maybe a few years ago. And especially in the hiring space, it becomes even more of a it's much more important. For example, in ads, nobody really cared if they saw less ads, right? Whereas <laughs> with the jobs, you cannot take that liberties. We have to collect data, track biases, even when we are at the source of collecting data. The algorithm piece comes a little later in my mind, because like I said, algorithms just learn from what the data gives you. So you want to start with that. You want to measure biases in the existing system or existing data. 
start correcting it there and then the algorithm picks it and then of course you want to monitor how the algorithm is continuing to not introduce biases and produce more bias data in the future because you brought up bias i wanted this but last question is it just like when we started we talked about algorithms you're looking about how to make things more efficient but you're also looking at the other opposite yep. side of degrading it i have the feeling that the more we learn about biases the more we learn <laughs> that we don't know like it's like peeling an, uh, you know, an onion and yeah. we're just peeling layers and okay we can get race we can get gender we can get this but yeah. where are we going to start getting neurodiverse and economic diverse like all these other factors of uh, either bias preference yeah. however we want to yeah. phrase that so yeah. is it as simple as we're always looking at bias in the same way as how do we make it more efficient how do we make it not degrade Yes, I think if you don't ask, if you don't measure, then you don't know the problem. You want to constantly ask these questions and add new dimensions to this question. Like you said, it started with gender bias, but there are 10, 15 other dimensions which along right. which you could be biased. And unless you even think of those, you wouldn't think of tracking those, you wouldn't think of measuring that bias, and you wouldn't think of fixing the bias. So we have to constantly yeah i think as a society our thinking is also evolving on this right if you look at regulation they are a little slow but i think they also force hands especially for the larger companies to think about these things yeah i think it's a continuous process where we think of new dimensions which right now for you for example you said new neurodiversity and i had not even think, thought about it before so there will always be a broadening of our horizons as right. we think about these problems deeper and then it's a continuous process to make sure your models are aware of it and uh, also introduce these as the objective function or the utility in your optimizations unless you deliberately so uh, unless you deliberately put that as an function optimization target for your algorithm it's not going to do anything about it right. so this has to be so the uh, definition of the objective function for an algorithm is the human given or the designer given algorithm designer given and right. that is something we as humans have to constantly do and the algorithms and the techniques will continue to evolve and become more and more efficient but what it, like you have to direct it in the direction which makes sense it will go fast in the direction it will go faster in 5 years and 2 years right but the direction has to be set by us yeah and it, and again it could go faster in the wrong direction so it's that's that constant making yeah. sure of the guardrails yeah. of, of making sure it's doing exactly what we want it to do you've done a wonderful job this has been a great topic thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you william it's been a pleasure to chat with you absolutely and thanks everybody for listening until next time You've been listening to the Recruiting Live podcast by Recruiting Daily. Check out the latest industry podcasts, webinars, articles, and news at recruitingdaily.com.